but I wasn't buying it. At least I didn't think I was. I uh, went to graduate school, and I was working on my PhD in philosophy when I met Jesus. So I'm one of the few people I think you might find who met Jesus at Yale University working on his PhD in philosophy. Um, and uh, that's how I got saved. Walked in, I'll tell you that story, because I like Saturday night things because we have a little more time. I can tell you things I can't on a Sunday morning. So I was, uh, I was in this uh, class. It was a class in Heideggerian existentialism taught by a very famous professor from Europe. And uh, they passed out the, the, this course syllabus. And uh, after the syllabus, there was another piece of paper circulating in the room. And we were told that we had to sign this thing or we wouldn't be allowed to stay in the class. That's kind of weird because I'd never had that happen in my undergraduate experience. And I never had it happen after that in my graduate schools either. But when the paper got to me, I read it, and I was a little dumbfounded. It, it was a release form releasing Yale University from any legal responsibility if I would go out and commit suicide as a result of taking this class. Now, if you know anything about existential philosophy, they're all about the final experience. This was back in the same, at the same time I was at Yale. Timothy Leary, Leary was at Harvard teaching philosophy and dishing out LSD at the same time. And so a lot of philosophy students were doing that, seeking the final experience. And when I, when I saw that paper, it suddenly dawned on me that for all of my life to this point, I had been working as hard as I could, uh, as fast as I could, to get the most knowledge and the most education, because I thought that if I knew more than anybody else around me, that would make me okay. That would make me acceptable. That would make me, you know accepted by other people, because that's really what I was looking for. And it suddenly dawned on me as I'm looking at this piece of paper that the people who are higher up on the ladder than I am are even more screwed up than me. <laughs> so I didn't sign the paper. I went to the library on the way home from class, and I got uh, a Greek New Testament, because I'd minored in Greek in college so that I could read Plato and Aristotle. And uh, I got a book called uh, Mere Christianity by a guy named C.S. Lewis. And another book called The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable? by a guy named F.F. F. Bruce, because that was my issue. I wasn't sure that the New Testament, that I could trust the Bible to tell me what Jesus actually said and did. Um, and I spent the next two weeks reading. And at the end of that time, actually halfway through that time, I was convinced that uh, it was all for real. The New Testament was true, that Jesus really said those things, and he really did those things, uh, and uh, that he really was God. It took me another several days to, uh, to actually bow the knee and become a Christian because I was terribly afraid that if I let God have control of my life, I let Christ be the Lord of my life, that he would do something terrible, like make me become a preacher. <laughs> um, so I came in, well, C.S. Lewis's words for his conversion was he came into the kingdom kicking and screaming, and that's kind of how I feel. So that's how I met Jesus. So I left my uh, Ph.D. program, never finished it, by the way, uh, and went to seminary for just one year because I wanted to get some theological grounding for my faith. And there was a school in Philadelphia where there was a guy who was a Christian and a philosopher. His name was Cornelius Van Til. And so it was Westminster Seminary, so I went to Westminster for one year. And that was the year that uh, I reconnected with my wife, who had known me since we were both in junior high school. Uh, and we had actually double dated quite often, but not with, one, but with different people uh, through high school. And uh, uh, we got together. She was going to Philadelphia College of the Bible. I was at Westminster Seminary in Philly. And uh, she married me on the condition that I wouldn't become a pastor, uh, which was uh, kind of interesting. Um, and um, I was okay because I had no intentions of doing that. But uh, after one year of seminar, I decided to do a second year. But I had lost my fellowship when I left the, the Ph.D. program at Yale. And so I was out of money. And there was another seminary in Philadelphia that had uh, $1,000 less per year. And back in 1970, $1,000 was a lot of money, educationally speaking. Not so much today, unfortunately. So I transferred, and I went to this other school that was more heavily endowed. It was the Theological Seminary of the Reformed Episcopal Church. Spent two years there, 
uh, graduated, and uh, toward the end of that time, God had convinced me that I needed to become a pastor, and I was really sweating that one out, and, but, but my wife had come to the same conclusion, and so it wasn't an issue, and uh, we found the alliance. I'll tell you how we found the alliance in just a second, but, but if you grow up Baptist, and you learn your theology from the Orthodox Presbyterians, and then you graduate from the Episcopal school, where are you going to serve? Well, the only ones that want you are the Alliance. <laughs> what actually happened is uh, my wife was uh, working at a dry cleaning place. And by the way, my wife will be with me tomorrow. She came up with me, but she felt ill when we got to the hotel, so... She's recovering a little bit, and hopefully she'll be here with me in the morning. Um, and she can verify all the stories then. Um, and and um, I don't know where I was. Oh, she was working at a dry cleaner place, and she led the gal she was working with to the Lord. And that girl started going to a church called Lakewood Chapel. It's a Christian Mission Alliance church, but I didn't know that. And um, we decided we'd better go to that church and find out, make sure it was a good church because we wanted her to be under good teaching. So we went visited this church, Lakewood Chapel in Mays Landing, New Jersey. And as soon as we drove in, I saw the sign Christian Missionary Alliance. I didn't know a lot about the Alliance, but I knew it was an evangelical group. So I said to Mimi, this will be a fine place for your friend Fran to go, I'm sure. We went in, we listened. Um, seminary students are very critical of preaching. And uh, I just, just realized there's something sticking into me here. When you walk with a cane, you store your cutlery in strange places. Uh, anyhow, so we, we, we went and we started to listen to this, this sermon. The pastor was a great pastor, terrible preacher, but he was a great pastor. I was a seminary student, hypercritical. Halfway through the sermon, I leaned over to my wife and said, look, this is a great church for Fran, but we cannot come to this church because we were looking for a church at the same time. We had just moved. And um, I probably would have been it, except that there was an old guy in the church. He was a Norwegian dock builder named George Tunnison, um, real heavy Norwegian accent. And he was one of the elders, and he beat me to the back door. And he made me so welcome. Invited me to his house for dinner. Just told me how great it was to have us there. That I felt guilty not going back. <laughs> so let me tell you something. When new people come to your church, you got to make sure that you get to the back door before they do and you make them welcome, because you never know what the result's going to be. Three weeks later, I was suddenly leading the youth group. <laughs> Seven weeks later, the pastor resigned and took a different church, and it was a small church, only about 60 people. They said, you're in seminary, would you preach? I said, well, yeah, if you want me. And they said, we have to talk to our district superintendent, a guy named Richard Bailey. And... Um, I met him, and the rest is history, and that's how I got into Christian Missionary Alliance. So pay attention to your visitors, okay? You make them welcome. We, we, at Ridgeway, we have a three-minute rule, and we often articulate it from, from, from the pulpit at the end of a service. For the first three minutes after the service is concluded, you are not allowed to talk to anybody you already know. You've got to find somebody you don't know and who might be new and make them welcome. And you would not believe how many people have stayed and later become believers, including a, a Muslim doctor from Afghanistan that I just baptized. This isn't being broadcast, is it? If it is, cut that part. That I just baptized uh, two weeks before I retired from the church, who came to the church for an event was felt so welcomed by everybody there. And two weeks later was sitting at my dinner table telling me that he always knew that Islam wasn't the way, but he didn't know what the right way was. And one year later, he was a committed disciple of Jesus Christ. 
when people come to visit your church, you got to make sure they make a friend. Because if they make a friend, they'll hang around long enough for them to hear the gospel, and they'll hang around long enough for you to disciple them. But if they don't make a friend, they might not even come back another time. So please, what you do on Sunday mornings is even more important with regards to the visitor than what he does. Because he won't get to them as fast as you can. And if they think that they're welcome, they'll come back. And that'll make all the difference in the world. Um, Mimi and I have had the privilege of planting nine churches. And uh, that's a really big, important thing. So, you know, for whatever it's worth. Anyhow, uh, the rest is history. When I came into the Alliance, we uh, had to, back in those days, fill out application forms. And at the end of them, we had a list in order of preference, the kind of ministry we wanted to be involved in. And there were eight possibilities. On my list, number eight, in order of things I was interested in was being a missionary. I don't want to be a missionary. Um, number seven was being a pastor in a city. No, that was number six. Number seven was planning a new church. So plan a new church, be a pastor in a city, go be a missionary. Those are the bottom of my list because I, they, I didn't think I was gifted for those things and, and because, frankly, they sounded like a lot of work to me. Um, and I didn't grow up in a city. So. Uh, so my first charge was to plant a church in a city. That's, you know, that, that, that's, God has a sense of humor. And after we planted a few churches in New Jersey, they asked us to go to, to Australia to be the field representatives for, for the Alliance there and to teach church planning at the, the, the seminary in Australia. Um, so we've planted a bunch of churches in South Jersey, nine actually. Went to Australia, um, where, was a field director there and taught at the Alliance College of Theology. Came back, was the church planning director in the Metropolitan District. Then because I was afraid that somebody was going to ask me to be a district superintendent, I went to Fulton, New York to pastor that church for five years. And at the end of that five years, I ended up being a district superintendent anyway. Uh, <clears throat> did that for 10 years, went to the national office and then came back and was at Ridgeway. That covers 47 years, and what that really proves is that I can't hold a job. Uh, but my wife, God bless her, followed me all over the world. And wherever God sent us, she went with a smile on her face. We've got three great kids. Our oldest daughter, Rachel, uh, was 15 years old when we came home from Australia, and uh, she was already in love, so when she was 19, she married an Aussie went back, and I have four grandchildren and two, and a third to be born in January, great-grandchildren in Australia, who I'll get to see around the first of the year when we go down. I'm going to be the speaker for the 50th anniversary of the Alliance in Australia in February at their council. So I'll get to see my new grand, great-grandkids that I haven't met yet. Um, child number two is my daughter Becky, who is the... Uh, wife of a church planner in New Jersey, and her husband went to school with Nathan and, uh, uh, at Alliance Theological Seminary, and I think that's partly how this connection got made for us here. And uh, when we, reti actually, we, we retired from Ridgeway in May and went and renovated the first floor of the house that they live in into an apartment, so I fulfilled one lifelong ambition. I've lived long enough to be a problem to my kids. Uh, our third uh, uh, child is Joshua, who uh, graduated from West Point in year 2000, spent 14 years, 15 years as an Apache helicopter pilot, five deployments. His wife said no more. They live in uh, Cander, New York, which is about two hours west of here near uh, Elmira and uh, Ithaca. And uh, they have three kids. So we've got 10 grandkids. Four great, two and a half great kids. The half is, she's there, but she just hasn't been born yet. Uh, three uh, in January, and that's kind of who we are and what we've done. The question that I get asked most often is, how did Mission 119 come about? I've already told you why it got named that. When I went to Fulton, New York, to pastor the church in Fulton, 
in this district. Uh, it was the very first time that I ever pastored a church that I didn't start. And so I was expecting that I was going to a large church uh, that had had great pastors for the last 40 years and uh, that I would go to a church full of people who really knew their Bible. And when I got there, to my utter amazement, I got a congregation full of people who knew some things about the Bible, but they didn't know a whole lot more about the Bible than the pagans I had been, I had been leading to Christ and, and, and putting into church plants in New Jersey. And the reason was because they were depending completely on the great preaching of the, pa the pastors who were, were, were preaching to them every week to, to feed them. And they never learned to feed themselves. Uh, and so one Sunday, uh, I challenged them in, in a Sunday morning. I was actually preaching from Psalm 119. And uh, I said, you know what? It's not good enough for you to know that you believe what you believe because Pastor Fogel told you or Pastor Thomas told you or Pastor Soper told you. You need to know that you believe what you believe because you know where it is in the Bible and the Spirit of God has told you. Uh, and uh, so if you want to change that pattern and become people who really know the Word, why don't you come out tonight before the evening services, back in the days when everybody had two services on Sunday, and, and um, we'll figure out what we're going to do about this. I had no idea what I was going to do. But uh, that night, about 65 people came and said, we really are serious. We want to know more about the Bible. We want to know the Bible for ourselves. And so I said, well, if I prepared a cassette tape for you every week, and I gave you about three pages to read every day, and then I gave you a 10-minute commentary on what you read, would you do this with me? And they said, yes. And that's how Know the Word was born, with cassette tapes. And for 65 weeks, they faithfully did it. At the end of the 65th week, I got called to be the district superintendent in the Metro District, and so we kind of put the project on the shelf. And for the next 15, 18 years, they kept recycling those cassette tapes in upstate New York, uh, not only at the Fulton Church, but in other churches in and around the area. And then uh, a number of years ago, the president of the Alliance, uh, Gary Benedict, said to me one day when I was sitting in his office, you know, he knew about the project, he said, you really need to finish that, and we need to, you know, do something other than cassette tapes. <laughs> so so I, I, I accepted that challenge, and the last year I was at the national office, and then the first eight or ten weeks I was at Ridgeway. This was back in 2011. We went back, we remet, we took all the old cassette tapes, remastered them, put them uh, on, uh, digitized the, the recordings, and uh, then put them on CDs. And uh, we started this at the church at Ridgeway. But at the same time I did it at Ridgeway, uh, just as I was finishing up the project, the pastor of the church in Allegheny Center in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Rock Dillman, he knew what I was doing, and he said, can we use them? And the pastor of the Alliance Church in Omaha, Nebraska, a church of about 5,000 people, said, can we use them? And so I let those two churches use the, 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 the CDs. And uh, they had a really good experience with them. In fact, Allegheny Center has now gone through them three times with the entire congregation. They're just finishing their third time through. Um, and about 10 weeks after that, a young man who was a brand new Christian walked into my office and said, um, do you know what I do for a living? I said, no. He said, I'm, a, I'm a, an app designer, a web designer. And he said, I took three weeks off from work, and I want to show you what I did. And that's how the app was born. And uh, you've been the beneficiary of the, the uh, volunteer labor of a guy named Kyle Broadbeck, who put together the, the app, the Apple app. And my son-in-law in Australia, who's an IT guy, put together the Android app. So those two guys collaborated across an ocean and put together uh, the app, and then the whole thing has just um, gone way beyond what I, whatever I, uh, ever I expected it to do. Uh, now it's being used in 50 countries and all 50 states, and every day about 15,000 people or so are uh, uh, listening to me say, good morning, this is Pastor Soper. 
And if I'd known that was going to happen, I never would have sung. I never would have sung. <laughs> but that's history. And that's how you got it. So are there any questions? All the way to the back. Oh, that's Ed. I met him earlier. He's a troublemaker, right? No, no, no. What, what's the question, Ed? Go ahead. No, no assistance. Um, the first, again, remember, the, the first incarnation was at Fulton. And I was committed to a schedule. I said to my people, if I gave you a cassette tape every week, would you do this? So they were being produced every week in addition to my two sermons and my other things that, that, that we were doing at the church. So most Saturday nights, I never went to bed. <laughs> most Saturday nights were spent in a recliner chair with a handheld micro cassette recorder uh, and me uh, speaking off the top of my head with no manuscripts. Um, now, after the fact, one of my administrative assistants at that church would then listen to the tape and, and type out uh, a transcript of what I had said. And uh, when we went back and redid them uh, a few years ago in, 20, in 2011, uh, so a lot of mistakes got cleaned up. There's still some to clean up, as you have no, noticed, I'm sure, as you've gone along. But uh, the first 65 weeks were done uh, without the benefit of any research assistant. <laughs> and uh, they were just done really off the top of my head, sitting in a chair at 3 o'clock in the morning on Sunday morning because I had to have the cassette tape done before I went to church at 8 o'clock. Uh, and uh, that's how it happened. Uh, the, 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 the rest, the, uh, the last uh, 22 or 23 or whatever weeks it was, 26 weeks, the last 26 weeks, uh, we're done a little more carefully, um, but uh, still no research assistant. Uh, they, they were just things that God brought to my mind oh, after having you know, read and, and thought and, and taught over those years. So any mistakes are, you know, I can't, I can't blame anybody else. It was me. And there, there are quite a few uh, little things that, that still need to be cleaned up, and we've got a list that we're gradually working through. And now that I'm retired, we're going to be able to clean up those tapes. And uh, There's one day when half, uh, a few minutes in, I said, oh, that's bad. We've got to start this over. Uh, you've, you've heard that one, right? Yeah, I got, I've got to go back and fix that one. Other questions? I saw at least one other hand. Okay. Well, the real, the, the, the back story there, and what we didn't even talk about before, is that God knows what he's doing. I told you I was born with a birth defect, right? Well, if you're the crippled kid, and you can't run and play baseball and football and basketball, which later I got to do. I actually even made a basketball team when I was in college. Intramural team, but still. Uh, for me, that was pretty impressive. Uh, but... Um, If you can't do the stuff all the other kids are doing when you're uh, eight years old, 10 years old, you know what you do? You read. So I read two, three, four books a day sometimes when I was a kid. Because it's what I could do and what I enjoyed doing and what I loved doing. And it took me many, many years to figure out 
that my birth defect turned out to be the greatest blessing God ever gave me. Because it, it enabled me to develop discipline. Um, when I was growing up, uh, I went to clinic uh, with a lot of kids who had cerebral palsy or, or were recovering from polio because that was still an issue back in the 1950s. Uh, and uh, most of them were in better shape than I was. Most of the ones I went to clinic with now. There are a lot of people who have CP who are much more profoundly disabled than me. Uh, it affected the right side of my brain, the whole left side of my body. Nothing worked on this side of my body. So I had to do physical therapy. I had to do, to, to do exercises. I learned to play the piano, to learn how to use my left hand. Uh, they rotated the bone in my left foot, left, left, left leg, the tibia, so that I could learn to walk. Uh, but I had to do a lot of physical therapy and a lot of exercises, and I had to develop a lot of discipline. Um, most of the kids I went to clinic with, the ones who were better off than I was, never held a job. Um, most of them are not even alive today. Um, and uh, I just thank God for the parents that he gave me because they made sure I did the work. Uh, and one of the exercises I had to do as a kid was I had to lay on the floor and lift my chest off the ground. That was, that was the exercise. My dad would put thumbtacks under me to make sure that I did it. <laughs> and it wasn't because he was being cruel. It was because he loved me. Uh, when, when I would fall down, which I did frequently, I still do frequently. Uh, the reason I use a cane now is because my balance is getting worse uh, as I get older. Um, whenever I would fall down, everybody would rush to pick me up. My father wouldn't let him. He'd come stand beside me and say, you can get up, son. He'd help me get up. But he wouldn't, he wouldn't let anybody pick me up because I had to learn. Well, I learned a lot of discipline. And I read a lot of books. And a lot of the stories I tell, because I do tell a lot of stories, are things that I remember from when I was 10 years old reading in those books I read. And it turned out that what I thought was a horrible, cruel thing turned out to be the greatest blessing I've ever had. Uh, and what Sarah's alluding to is, is that I also developed the ability to memorize a lot of things back in those days. And that stuck, stuck with me, and I memorized huge chunks of Scripture, even though I wasn't a believer yet. But I, uh, but I did. I memorized a lot of other stuff, too. Uh, you know how when you're, you're in grade school, uh, you, you put the comic book behind the, the math book and, and hope the teacher doesn't see, and every once in a while you get caught out, right? So... I was in fourth grade, and I had a book behind the math book, and the teacher figured it out, and so she came back all set to embarrass me, and she rips the book away. But it wasn't a comic book. I was memorizing William Shakespeare's Julius Caesar at the time. <laughs> and she said, what are you doing? So I told her, and she said, you're not. So I proceeded to recite about four pages of Mark Anthony's speech at Julius Caesar's funeral. Friends, Romans, countrymen, let me your ears. Uh, I've come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. The evil that men do lives on in their hearts. The good is often turned uh, with their bones. Uh, and after about three pages, she put the book back and uh, never left me alone for the rest of the year. I was free to do whatever I wanted. So, so those, all of that stuff... And, and and I developed a pretty good memory, and that's why I was able to drop out of college, out of high school, and go to college when I never. I don't have a high school diploma; I never got one. Uh, first thing I ever graduated from was college, but that was all because of because of that that history. So God knew what He was doing. Questions. Yeah. Isn't that cool? 
it all fits. And one of the greatest proofs that the Bible really is the Word of God is all of those little threads that that start with such tiny seeds, like the 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 the, uh, the promise in Genesis 3:15, the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, and how it just keeps the stream gets wider and wider. Uh, last you know, this morning, we we were we were driving around a little bit before we got here a little earlier than we thought. And we uh, we uh, drove up the Hudson a little bit. Of course, now where I'm from, uh, White Plains, the Hudson River is like four miles a, uh, across. The Tappan Zee Bridge, we, we live right by the Tappan Zee Bridge. And, uh, you know, up here, the Hudson River is, you maybe could spit across it <laughs> if the wind was right. Uh, well... I'm sure if you go further north, you get to, to the headwaters of the Hudson, it's just a trickle. And so many of the themes and ideas and concepts that God sows in the book of Genesis, just, just little trickles, become these mighty torrents when you get to the New Testament. And it all fits together. Uh, Nobody's asked me why we go back and forth between the Old Testament and the New Testament as much as we do and the, and the way we do. Do you know why we do that? The first, the first reason is because I knew that if people are going to read through the whole Bible and they start with Genesis, they'll quit at Leviticus. And I didn't want that to happen. So that's the first reason we move back and forth. But the other reason is because I do want people to see those connections. And by jumping back and forth the way we do, um, and somebody said, well, how did you plan that all out? I didn't. I just started with, with Genesis, and then I said, well, we'll do Luke next. And then it, it, I'm sure that God had some plan. I didn't have a plan. It just happened the way it happened. And the same thing with why is it 91 weeks? Well, it's because that's how long it took me to finish. That's, that's, that, there's nothing magic about 91 weeks. It's just that's how long it took to do it. And I wanted to do only about three pages a day because I know that's what most people can tolerate and read in about a 10-minute period. And I wanted to have a tool that would work for, for people who only have limited amounts of time. They drive to work. You know, it's, most people drive to work about 20 minutes. Um, or my people are in a train for 40 minutes from, from, from uh, White Plains into, into New York City. But there's a limited amount of time and so I wanted to make sure we could, we could get the, those two 10-minute segments in, in a reasonable commute. Um, and, and so that's, that, that's why we did it that way. Well, the recommendation is you memorize what God, what God speaks to you from, okay? And uh, yes, there are passages like 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness that, that kind of are going to speak to everybody. Those are, those are the universal ones, John three sixteen. But, but you should memorize what, what, what God uses to speak to you. And the biggest help I can give you to memorize is First of all, teach your kids because what they learn, what they memorize as a child, even if they don't believe it yet, it doesn't go away. All the things I memorized as a kid were still there when I really understood, and God has used them. Um, uh, and uh, but but the the other greatest way to memorize Scripture is why I sing. That's why I sing. The reason I sing all those passages. And I could have sung many more, but I, I didn't want to burden people with that. And if I did it again, I probably would sing a lot less. But, but, uh, but uh, that's how I memorize. Uh, one of my big projects in recent years has been to memorize the 119th Psalm. Um, 
Well, the only way you're ever going to the only way you're ever going to memorize the longest chapter of the Bible. Yeah. Well, I'm still working on it, by the way. You know, the older you get, the harder it gets. Trust me. But but the only way I know how to do it is to put it to music. Uh, and so I'm not much of a composer, but I have my own kind of little tune I sing in my head. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless. Walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all of their hearts. They do nothing wrong. They walk in his ways. You have laid down precepts that are to fully obey. And, and so we go. And uh, every, every paragraph um, gets its own little tune and beat. And, but that's how I memorize. So, and you don't have to write your own song. The, 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 the Presbyterians have done us a great favor. The, um, the, the Reformed Presbyterians are the people we call the psalm singers. They only sing the psalms. But as a result of that, they've got every single psalm put to music. Um, and they have a hymnal. And you can buy it. And you can teach yourself to sing the psalms. Now, the wording will be a little bit different, but it's rhymed and it's metered so you can remember it. And it's very, very close to what, you know, to, to what the, the Hebrew is. So, you want to memorize the Psalms? Go get a, go get a Covenaris uh, Psalter and, and start, start singing. It's one way to do it. Being a pastor is, is, is a tough job. And it can be kind of overwhelming, especially when you realize that uh, a certain percentage, I'm sure it's not so in this church, but a certain percentage of, of people walk in, as soon as you start to preach, they fall asleep. Uh, I, I had a great friend who was a, a dairy farmer in my church in Fulton, New York. And if you know much about dairy farming, you know, those guys are up at 5 a.m. They're out in the cold barn. As soon as they walk into a building that's heat, it's over. You know? It's over. And, and, and my friend Windsor would walk into church every Sunday. And within five minutes, he, he would suffer heat stroke and be sound asleep. And he, was, he loved the Lord with all of his heart, but he never heard one sermon I ever preached. All right. Your sermons are not going to change people's lives. Now, it got, that doesn't mean God doesn't use your preaching. He does. And, and the Spirit can anoint the worst prepared sermon, and, and it'll change somebody's life. And that does happen. But the reality is that as a pastor, I can't change anybody's life. I can't change the way they think. I can't change the way they act. I can't change them. But the word of God is quick and sharp and more powerful than a two-edged sword piercing even to the heart. And the Holy Spirit uses God's word to change people's lives. And so my number one job as a pastor, I've been a pastor now for 47 years. My number one job as a pastor is to get people to engage the word of God with open hearts and open minds, 
because I know that whenever and wherever anyone engages the Word of God with an open heart and an open mind, God's Spirit will use God's Word and, and, they will change, and their life will change. So my primary task as a pastor is to find ways to get people into the Word of God because if I do that, God's Word will do all the rest. It takes a lot of heat off me. Uh, I'm not responsible to change people. That's the Holy Spirit's job. But the instrument he uses is the Word of God. So if I can get people to interact with God's Word with open hearts and open minds, it'll happen. And I really believe that. And that's really the, the, the reason that Mission 119 exists. And everywhere I go, people tell me about how God used his word to change their life. And every once in a while, Mission 119 is a big piece of that. And uh, that makes everything worthwhile. Uh, if I ever knew how much work it was going to be, I wouldn't have done it. But I'm really glad I did. Okay, any other questions? Yes, sir. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially in those days when I was sitting with a cassette recorder and a microphone and no manuscript. I often got surprised because I'd look up at the clock and it'd be nine minutes and 30 seconds. And you know, it's supposed to be about 10 minutes long. And I had not even begun to do what I thought I was going to do. Um, but it's what God's Spirit sort of directed me to, and so I let it stand. I don't think I ever went back and changed one for that reason. I went back and changed a couple because of mistakes. But, but uh, yeah. So if I were to do it again, it would probably be a lot of different things. Uh, and every once in a while, I'll listen to one. And I'll say, boy, you know what? I didn't talk about that. I didn't talk about that. And I wish I had, but, um, you know. The good thing is that, that whatever you didn't talk about today, it'll come up again five more times, 500 more times. So, and I do believe in intentional redundancy. So, you know, I don't feel bad about talking about the same thing over and over and over again. Yes. Oh, there are no chapters that don't get read. There are there. There are a few chapters where, if in Kings and Chronicles, there are some reduplications. And when they happen, uh, they get noted in the notes, but you don't have to read them because they're pretty much verbatim what was just read. So that's really the only, the only, that's the only thing I can think of. And now there are other other passages like in Leviticus. We never read the whole book of Leviticus at one time. I did that for the reason I already noted because people just tend to get bogged down, and so we read part of Leviticus when we did Exodus in this section about the temple, or the tabernacle. And we did part of Leviticus when we did Hebrews, where it talks about the ideal temple, the temple in heaven. But, um, but the only parts that got totally left out were those virtually verbatim passages in Chronicles and Kings, where had you read one but not the other. Well, (sighs) 
how to how to get people excited about the word is is really the same question for me as just how to get them to 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 read it in the first place. Because if they read it and they engage with it, I use that word a lot, but with open hearts and open minds, they're going to get excited because the the, the Bible is is a living book. It's not like any other script, not like any other literature in the world. Uh, and, and so, you know, my my goal is just to help it be under help people understand it. That's why there's a ten minute commentary that goes with it, because for a lot of people, the first time through the Bible, it is hard because there's so many ideas that they've never encountered before and so much culture that they don't understand and so many words that are difficult for them. And so uh, the point is, it's, I liken it to, to going, there, there's a huge, there, New York City has lots of museums. One of, one of the great ones is the Metropolitan Muse Museum of Art that's there uh, right by Central Park. Well, I'm not an artist, and I don't understand art very well, and in fact, I'm colorblind. So that makes it really hard for me to get into art. Um, but one of my good friends, one of the elders at our church at Ridgewood, is an artist. And he's an art historian, and he's a tour guide at the Met. And so if I'm going to go to the Met, I want to go with John Kincaid, because John will help me understand what I'm looking at. And then it makes a lot more sense to me, and I can actually even get excited about it, even if I can't see all the colors. Um, and that's kind of what I tried to be with, with Mission 119. I want to be the tour guide that helps remove some of the obstacles that keep people from engaging and, and getting excited about the word. Um, one of the ways I think about myself and about my job as a pastor, and certainly as a Bible teacher, is I, I, I'm kind of like a, a midwife, a spiritual midwife. You know, a midwife has an interesting job, extremely interesting. But, but she doesn't decide that there's going to be a baby born. She doesn't decide when the baby's going to be born. She doesn't even decide how the baby's going to be born. She's just there to clear away as many obstacles as possible and to make that birthing process as easy as possible. And when I envision my role as a teacher, as a pastor, as an evangelist, that's how I see myself. Uh, I'm just there to kind of clean away, clear away as many obstacles as I can. And if the language is archaic, I'm going to get somebody into a translation they can understand. And a lot of people never read the Bible because they don't, they don't know how to read Shakespeare because they, the King James English is just beyond them, and that's the only Bible they've ever seen. So I want to get them a translation they can use, that they can understand. And then I want to help them understand those parts that might be more difficult, and that's what the little commentary is about. You know, if, if people would just read three pages of the Bible every day, I'll be happy, camper, because that's the goal. But I know that sometimes it's necessary to keep them engaged or to help them is to give them some more information to work with, and that's what the commentary is about. It's just trying to clear away the obstructions and make it a little easier to understand. And by the way, if you go through 91 weeks, in other words, when you're finished, you have a, you've had the equivalent of Old Testament survey on a college level, New Testament survey, uh, an introduction to systematic theology, and uh, a, a, hermeneutics, a hermeneutics course, how to understand the Bible. Uh, you never knew that's what you were getting, but it's all mixed up together and and stirred together to make it palatable, but that's that's what you got. And that's the purpose of it. Yeah. That's me. It's three o'clock in the morning and I'm sitting there like <laughs> My wife complains because whenever I make a point, I drop my voice. Instead of getting loud, I get soft. And uh, some of the older folks in our congregation have a problem with that because they can't hear me very well. But uh, that's just my personality. But that is me. Yeah. Yes? Well, 
God, well, okay, you've just finished the life of David. Uh, in your okay, so so here here are the three themes that that I see in in David's life. God's grace. It's there from from the get go. It's not about who David is. It's about God choosing David, and God's grace is there at every stage of David's life. Right. Sometimes it's it's God's uh, protecting grace, His provenient grace, uh, preserving David. Sometimes it's God's empowering grace, uh, uh, especially during that middle section of David's life after he becomes king, and God just empowers him, and everything he touches is successful because God's empowering it. And sometimes you get to the last part of David's life after he has made a number of rather catastrophic mistakes. It's God's redeeming grace. It's God's forgiving grace. We all go through seasons of our lives where we need God's protective grace, when we need God's empowering grace, when we need God's forgiving grace, but God's grace wraps it all together. Uh, so that's one of those tremendous themes. You know, I, I won't tell you ahead of time what I'm going to do tomorrow morning, but I thought about preaching a sermon here that I've preached probably more often than any other sermon I've ever written uh, called It's All About Jesus. Uh, the, from beginning to the end, the Bible is all about Jesus. I'm a teacher. That's my strongest gift, I think. That's what I do. And I'm always trying to make things simple. So let me give you the Bible in 19 words. You ready? Okay. 19 words. This is my summary of the Bible. I think it'll stand. Nathan, you can, you can, you can evaluate this and give me some feedback later. But I think if I had to summarize the whole Bible in 19 words, here it is. Don't be afraid. Okay, that's the command God gives most often, right? Fear not. Over 300 times, God says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Trust me. I love you. I have a plan to rescue you. His name is Jesus. 19 words, that's the Bible. Okay? So that, that sums it all up, okay? Okay?